right, friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, we are recording this on uh, May 13th. Uh, happy birthday, Nathan and Nick. Um, Indeed. Even though this is like, if you're hearing this, you are at the earliest hearing this, like, a month and a half after your actual birthday. Happy belated, um, Nathan. Your party was dope. <laughs> His party has not happened yet. Oh, <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be nuts if, like, somebody died at his party? You know what? I'm going to say it right now. Like, With... if the party was horrible, I want you to put in a drop right now. Saying so, three, two, one, here. Today I didn't even have to use my AK. I gotta say it was a good day. It's just gonna be okay. a wah, wah, wah. I, I, I just like giving you assignments. Indeed. Um, but no, okay, so it's May 13th, and there's a lot going on in the world. The CDC just said that if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear masks. Israel's reenacting Crystal Knocked on Palestine. It's 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 a lot. Resident Evil Eight is apparently blowing some shit up. Like the same, there, there's same a lot old going shit, on. Just different day. Yes. Same however, boss as the old boss. However, however, we have an update on one of our topics, and I kind of I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. Um, so some time ago. Uh, LHR topic alum John Mulaney oh, uh, shit. Okay. <laughs> was checked into rehab um, or checked himself into rehab for relapsing uh, with, I believe, cocaine and alcohol. Uh, he very famously spoke in multiple stand up in multiple stand up specials yeah. about how he does not drink anymore because he needed to stop because he had a bad habit of getting blackout drunk every night and he relapsed. Um, happens to the best. Uh, we, you know, wished him all the best. Continue to wish him all the best. Um, recently, Twitter has taken to talking about how he has filed for divorce um, from his wife, who, again, in his stand-up specials, he had he spoke of very highly. Um, you know, and they're like. Twitter's talking about, like, who's going to have custody of Petunia? Hashtag pray for Petunia, who's his English bulldog. But literally just before we started this call, I was talking to Stephanie, and she was on Twitter. And and, um, fabulous writer, editor, poet, I don't think she's a poet, essayist, novelist, Roxane Gay, tweeted about how apparently, and, you know, history may bear out that this isn't true, but apparently Andy... He filed from divor- for divorce, and it is now apparently the rumor, I don't know if it's confirmed or not, that he's dating Olivia Munn. Right. And and just for anybody who, who cares for the tea but is unaware, we're, we're talking of a timeline of like, I think less than a week. Like, I think less than a week ago, John Mulaney announced that he was getting a divorce. And now, like, yeah, it's... The story is broken like today, it seems. Mm-hmm. And so who knows if it's uh, if it's true or not. But yes, I, I've also heard these rumors. I can corroborate. Now, the thing that I think I want to talk about with you, Andy, in this lovely douchebag buffer before we start our show proper is like 
What do we do with messy drama shit like this? Like, I... The reason this is actually fresh in my head is because of another um, generic-looking white man. I watched a video essay recently that was a defense of John Mayer. Hmm. Who I love dearly, and who I might even consider doing, like, a love on. But a big thing about it was talking about his music. Like, it was largely a defense of his music, which a lot of people uh, kind of basically say he did a body, your body is a wonderland and that that's all his career is when he's actually had a very varied and interesting musical career. But a big thing that's talked about is how he's kind of a jackass. He's a jerk. He's a douche. uh, He's had some, he said some very problematic things about um, sex and women and race. And recently he has kind of done a series of mea culpas about that like it like discuss the fact that a lot of that came from you know him being in this giant haze um because of fame because of how young he was um because of a lot of the spotlight he was thrust into there's a little bit of talk about some substance issues there, although none of that is confirmed, and I'm not going to pretend it is. And, you know, he's almost 40 now, and he's spending a lot of time just kind of being like, look, I, I'm i sorry for what I said back then. I was, I am trying to not be that person anymore. And so I'm thinking about that and my desire to forgive John Mayer because, uh, oh, look, they're both Johns. My desire to forgive John Mayer because I like his music. Mm. And I'm like, okay, cool. That makes sense to me. You got famous when you were 23. You're almost 40 now. And you're trying not to defend the dumb shit you did when you were in your early 20s. I get that. This stuff that's coming out for John Mulaney does not paint him in a good picture. Indeed. Obviously, we don't have all the details. But I like John Mulaney. So I don't want to think terrible things about him. And I'm just sitting here going like, all right, as far as I know, he hasn't hurt anybody, but his marriage is splitting up and he started dating another famous person very quickly afterwards. It suggests certain things, but I guess I'm trying to sit here and go, do I just care less because I like John Mulaney? And I think, you know, the short answer is probably... You know, like we said, time will tell. There's a version of this where John Mulaney's wife, Anna Tendler, um, who has her own agency and deserves a name. There's a, there's a story. There's a version of this where John Mulaney went into rehab and Anna Tendler is horribly unsupportive and was maybe part of the reason he fell off the wagon. And Olivia Munn has been like, this wonderful, compassionate, um, caring presence. There's another version of this where Anna Tendler didn't do a damn thing wrong and stood by John while he went to rehab and while falling off the wagon or maybe just for whatever reason, John Mulaney has decided he wants to change a pace and Olivia Munn is into that. And there's several versions of the story between those two extremes with many shades of gray. And, and the truth probably falls somewhere amongst all of those. Um, I think really the thing is like, there's sort of a deification to John Mulaney. 
because he was the well-spoken tall white man who brought wearing a suit back to stand-up comedy and told very quaint, hilarious stories that also perfectly um, encapsulated millennial humor and has stories about his bulldog and also about getting blackout drunk and is just this perfect sweet balance of stand-up comedy goodness and and you know we want to observe this person and look at somebody in Hollywood and be like he's got it figured out he's got a wife whom he loves and he loves how his wife tells him things that he's too stupid to think of on his own like you shouldn't let the waitress talk to you like that no I shouldn't um and at the end of the day he's a human being and he's affected by celebrity and if Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman couldn't make it work what hope do the rest of us even have um you know I'm thinking about how I feel I, I feel very much the same way about Bo Burnham who who hasn't really done I, I equate them the same in my mind they are these ironically they are both tall white men who have you know reinvigorated stand-up comedy and have politics that i agree with and seem to be genuinely good people i haven't heard of bo burnham doing any shit um Mm-mm. but at the end of the day it's hollywood man and I truly think that that level of celebrity and fame and being in that culture for long enough does stuff to you. I look at the fact that John Mulaney was kind of riding a wave with Big Mouth and with um, his voice acting really taking off and him becoming, you know, one of these stand up touchstones of, of our recent memory and and when i heard he first went into rehab i was very sad and i wished him the best but i wasn't terribly surprised so you know you you get that famous you end up getting that busy you get that busy you get that stressed you get that stressed there are different ways you end up coping with it and you know he, he you know let's say it does come out that like the elephant in the room is like, was John Mulaney like dating Olivia Munn when he was still married? Like the timing of it is is horrible for Mulaney's optics. I will say that it's the I'm out of rehab, I'm getting divorced, I'm dating Olivia Munn. In in you know the matter of like three weeks, all this information comes out. Sure, and you know I don't. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, do we excuse infidelity? Who the fuck knows? Maybe they had a maybe they had a certain arrangement or maybe he did commit adultery. I, I don't know. Um, I don't pretend to know. I do know that like I think of other like, OK, we you and I recently both found out that um, Paul Hollywood of Great British Bake Off fame um, had a marriage end because he cheated on his spouse do we enjoy Paul Hollywood in Great British Bake Off any less knowing that he committed adultery? No. John Lithgow had a marriage end because he cheated on his wife with 
um, someone who he co-starred in a movie with, and I kick myself for not remembering either the co-star or the movie. But he is very public about, like, no, I did this bad thing. I don't like that I did this bad thing, but I did this bad thing. I can't change that. I lost my marriage over it. And I love John Lithgow. Yeah. So it's kind of a, like, okay, I'm not going to excuse infidelity, but also... Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead um, had an affair with Ewan McGregor, which led to the 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 ending of his marriage. Um, it came out recently. Thomas Middleditch kind of forced his wife to engage in polyamory. I think at the end of the day, it's just don't meet your heroes. Like actors are different people, and they live in their messy drama world. And it's a lot more nuanced than the statement I just made. But at the same time, it's kind of not. I guess, yeah, I mean, not meeting your heroes. That's, at the end of the day, they're going to be human. And it's, you can have good politics. You can make good art. And you can have a life that is more ethically complex or, you know, ethically disappointing than you want it to be. We all want our artists to be paragons of morality, and holy shit, that is almost never the case. Um, I hope the best for all parties involved in this story, but I think more than anything, I'm just kind of sitting here going like, why do I not care when it's you? Um, because he is delightful and he, you know, he especially appeals to you and I, we, we spent a half hour gushing over him on this very program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's something we just have to cotton with. Yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> well, thank of, you for indulging me. <laughs> you're, you're always welcome. Speaking of not meeting your heroes and speaking of the mm. failings of celebrity culture, let's talk about one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, um, real quick, for format's sake, uh, this is Love-Hate Relationship. Uh, our format of our show is pretty basic. Uh, after an initial eh, 10, 15 minutes of douchebag buffer talking about just some random topic that comes to our mind, um, we get into the topics of the show. Uh, we spend a third of the show, roughly, talking about something that one of us loves. Uh, we spend another third, roughly, talking about uh, something that one of us hates. And then we end the show by taking a relationship question from, ideally, you, the lovely audience, or, in some other cases, the internet at large. And, Andy, today, you have the love. Today I have the love, and that love is Sir Patrick Stewart. And just to tie in from our douchebag buffer, uh, Patrick Stewart has been married three times and has gone on the record on interviews saying his two biggest regrets in life are his two divorces. So, <laughs> all right, start on a low note and raise him back up. Uh, you know, I was going to say, do we even need an introduction? But I, I kid, of course we do. We, we are responsible podcasters. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question, especially Alex, knowing that you are not a huge Star Trek fan. I would love to know what your favorite role of Sir Patrick Stewart's is. And I have a guess, but I'm going to let you prove me wrong or right. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I hate admitting it. I really, really hate admitting it, but, um, I'm gonna be obvious and just say that 
My favorite role of Sir Patrick Stewart is as um, a more likable than otherwise presented um, portrayal of Professor Charles Xavier uh, in the uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox X-Men movies. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I had a feeling and I don't think there's any reason for you to hate to admit that it is, it is one of the most perfect castings of all time, like not even expanding beyond the superhero genre. Like I, I was going to go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, have you, re- I know there's a couple of Star Trek X-Men crossover novels uh, and famously, there is one where the cast, where, where the Star Trek Next Generation crew meet the X-Men. And there's a moment where uh, Jean-Luc Picard has a video call with Professor Charles Xavier. And the narration comments on the fact that they both kind of look alike. Yeah, right. I have not actually read any of those, but I have like heard the anecdote. Hell, we might have talked about it way back in our X-Men episode. Patrick Stewart took the role because somebody showed him an X-Men comic book and he asked, what am I doing on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know this story, but I love that. Indeed. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to talk about Patrick Stewart today. I, I mentioned him as one of my heroes and he, he truly absolutely is. Um, a little bit of behind the scenes here. We were talking about topics and I te- I texted you saying, you know, I, I kind of don't want to do this because I'm really scared of tempting the curse and, <laughs> and having something horrible happen to this beloved man. But uh, yeah, for, you, uh, for, go ahead. for reference to like new listeners or anyone who hasn't heard our shows before, we have a nasty habit of talking about people and then they die. Um, or talking about sports teams and then they lose. Uh, yep. so, so really rolling the dice on this one. But as you said, I, sure. I think he would want me to live not in fear. Oh God. So Please with, continue. with that, you know, Patrick Stewart is a English actor of, of great renown. And he is most well known for playing Captain Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek, the next generation, as well as playing professor, professor Charles Xavier in the original, uh, couple of Fox X-Men movies, as well as here and there in, in other X-Men roles. Uh, but beyond that, he is a world renowned Shakespearean actor who has been working for nearly 60 years on both stage and screen. He is an EGOT winner. Um, And for those of you who don't know, the EGOT is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. In this case, the O stands for Olivier Award, which is a uh, British theater acting award. So, but I'm going to count it, damn it. Um, And anybody anybody who's got a problem with that, he also has a SAG Award and a Sadden Award. So I think that balances out to an Oscar. All right. I'm not going to fight you on it. I know you especially won't. (laughs) Award shows are bullshit. We did an episode on it. Damn, this is a very referential episode. Please continue. I love it. Um, And yeah, like, you know, I could probably spend the entire segment just talking about Jean-Luc Picard if I wanted to. Make it so. Um, it mm. would not be hard. I'm, you know, in, in the miasma of loves yet to come, there's still Star Trek looming in the wings. 
Um, and next generation specifically has a lot of like deep meaning for me. Um, next gen was the star Trek that I literally grew up watching reruns of during the day. And like, I'm trying to think if there is a show I remember watching before star Trek, like a non kid show, like a real adult program. And I, I seriously think it might be my earliest memory of a TV show is watching early next generation. So like, okay. this has been a, a thing in my life for as long as I've been a, a person with memory. Um, as Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart is the embodiment of a noble, intelligent, kind hero diplomat character. Um, he's the kind of man who doesn't want to settle a argument or a issue with his fists, but instead always tries to seek peaceful resolution, you know, even to get nerdy and deep into Star Trek lore, even against space zombies like the Borg, who his fellow Admiralty, um, make a, a computer virus to, to, to genocide the entire race and Jean-Luc Picard, post-assimilation, mind you, has this really amazing speech about how if we kill these things that we don't like them, but they on, they're, they're only doing what they're supposed to do. If we, if we kill their entire race, we're no better than them. He is a compassionate man, someone who is open to new ideas on the fly. And as I was writing these notes, it really kind of hit me like... Jean-Luc Picard is what I came to idyllically imagine as the best form of a leader, of a diplomat, of a, you know, captain, president, whatever. Like Jean-Luc Picard, your moral compass? I was literally about to say, I think Jean-Luc Picard is my moral compass. Okay. Um, and I think <laughs> I think you can do a lot worse. Yeah, no, mine's Huey Freeman, and that's problematic. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, man. No, I mean, I don't have a taste for tea or old gray hot, but I digress. Um, I actually do, so. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. I, you know, Picard is such an amazing role. Picard, they actually just rebooted, not rebooted, but they like, they made a spinoff show um, in the past couple of years, literally called Star Trek Picard. And I watched that whole damn thing in a week. Um, you know, there, there is another quote from next generation. That is one of the most impactful pertinent quotes I've ever heard. And it, it, it's truly like, you know, talking about moral compass. This is something I, I live by. It is possible to make no mistakes and still lose. And that is not failure. That is life. That is deeply profound to me and a very important thing, I think, for any person to really hear and acknowledge because it's absolutely true. And I know mm. that was the, you know, that that really is credited to some writer, but it was Patrick Stewart who delivered it. <laughs> and, Damn it. And, and that's what, you know, I take away. Um, Patrick Stewart was an amazing uh, performer as Jean-Luc Picard and that's really kind of brought to the head by the fact that he kind of hated playing the character and tried to quit why did he come back for the like new show money well actually okay, I mean money and he's chilled out a lot in old life 
Which I'll you know touch what, on. That's fair. Okay. No, uh, real quick, Brent Spiner has this amazing story about how, like, you know, making uh, making the show, doing the days, you'd, you'd spend 12 hours a day filming Star Trek, and Patrick Stewart comes in, and he's this respectable actor, and he lives out of a suitcase for the first, like, two seasons, and there was a day where Brent Spiner and Gates McFadden and Michael Dorn are all like goofing around and, and fucking up takes because they just keep goofing off and they're doing it to try and keep sane. And there's a moment where Patrick Stewart kind of blows up at them and is like, you people, I am trying to act. And it's really funny to see what a stick he had up his ass. And then like sort of after that blow up moment, pulled it out and became the biggest practical joker on set. And then like, as he's gotten older and, and just done more and more comedy, you really see that he's just kind of this wonderful, silly man. Um, but to move away from star Trek, you know, Stewart is of course, otherwise best known as an utterly perfect Charles Xavier. You know, you kind of mm. mentioned it. One might argue the biggest deviation from the character is that his version isn't nearly as morally ambiguous as the comic book version. He has his moments, but, like, the comic book version is, like... The only thing that really distinguishes him from a lot of villains is narrative convention. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the movies, he's... Problematic, but he's not villainous overall. No, there's never a moment in the movies where, like, you find out he got a bunch of people killed and then never told anybody about it. Um, no. I, I, no. I very much enjoy the, uh, the Stuart Xavier performance to the point where I would not bat an eyelash if they just kept him in the Marvel movies. And like, hell, kill Xavier. Kill Xavier in whatever the first X-Men movie is and just let him be dead because... It keeps him from becoming a villain. <laughs> um, yeah, but he also had such a good send off in Logan. That's a very fair point, and I need to watch that movie again. As Stewart has gotten older, he's he's dived into the waters of comedy, like I said, and mm-hmm. you know he developed a relationship with Seth MacFarlane, um, playing just so weird CIA director Avery Bullock in American Dad. And you haven't lived until you've watched a character voiced by Patrick Stewart tell a stripper to shoot him in the balls with a BB gun. It's it does make American Dad a weird thing to watch, because when I think of Patrick Stewart, like that's the thing. When I think of Patrick Stewart, I either think of Charles Xavier or I think of this like because I don't really have the background with Jean-Luc Picard, I think of this like creature of gravitas this shakespearean trained actor who's like who plays who, who who's very comfortable like doing an incredible macbeth and he sings i love little girls as he's in the episode where he has an affair with Haley, and it's just like uh this is awkward i love little girls they make me feel so good i love Little girls, they make me feel so bad. All right, Patrick Stewart. See, my take on it is it it just it makes me so happy in a a way because I'm sitting here being like, you're living your best life. Good for you, man. He's having he's having fun. 
he's having fun. He decided that's what he wanted to do. And that's what was going to be important to him, you know, especially moving away from serialized television like that, you know, and it it, it allows him, it, it makes him this more rounded 3d fleshed out person in my mind that he has just this range, both in his acting, but also like as a person. Sure. Um, I very much love it. And, and I will never get tired of him leaning into the comedy. Um, you know, he, he, he's done stuff on American dad. He was the narrator for the Ted movies. Um, he had this talk show satire called blunt talk, which I haven't seen, but I've been meaning to. Um, and my absolute favorite thing is he plays himself in a series of strongbow cider commercials. Um, and the entire conceit is, Strongbow is so good. We don't actually need Patrick Stewart to represent it. So like in one commercial, they fire him before he gets a line out. Um, and the other one is him just sitting there asleep. And that's where you get the, uh, the acting gif, which just makes my heart sing with joy. Have you seen his Uber eats commercials with Mark Hamill? You know, I haven't, I know those recently played at the last Super Bowl, but I don't, I, I don't think I've seen them yet. They're like tailor made for you, Andy. Perfect. Like you need to watch those. All right. You I, need to watch them. I know what I'm doing later. <laughs> oh my god. Um I it would be insane not to talk about Patrick Stewart's career on the stage. You know, it's Absolutely. I, I'm certainly biased, but I would say without hyperbole, he is probably the most well-renowned Shakespearean actor of our time. The only possible arguments I would stand for is um, famous Patrick Stewart best friend Ian McKellen yeah. or Anthony Hopkins mm, yeah yeah but, I think I think any of those yeah I think those would probably be the ones that could most compete with him Um, you know I think of the, the only other person that comes to mind really is Andre Brower and He's just having the time of his life doing Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so. So there's something to this. There's something about Shakespearean actors who, you know, manage to then lean into comedy, which makes perfect sense uh, to me. I think it's, okay, it's the Leslie Nielsen thing. Yeah. Like, the reason why why all the, why Naked Gun and Airplane and, and all of those Leslie Nielsen movies were so great were because Leslie Nielsen plays it so straight. Because Leslie Nielsen is a, was a seriously trained actor. And he approached the roles with this seriousness, even when it was so ridiculous. And when you are trained in Shakespearean theater, you have to make it dynamic. And what is comedy if not exaggerated dynamics? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Stewart, like I said, I think he's one of the best. He's been acting in Shakespeare, in, in professional Shakespearean like stuff since 1966, you know, nearly, mm-hmm. what is that? 60 years uh, of doing that. You know, he first became a, a, a member of the Royal Shakespeare company and has done on again, off again stints with them for time and moral um, mm-hmm. you know, he made his Broadway debut in 1980 with a, he, he was one of the rude mechanicals in a, a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and I, I can't say I 
know it very well, but in my research, I I came to understand people consider that run of Midsummer Night's Dream on Broadway to be one of the most like legendary performances of of the show ever produced, and he was okay. a huge part of that. All right, uh, but you know, he's just he's a man who he's a man who at this stage can play Macbeth and then turn around and play Avery Bullock. And there, sure. there's something about that range. He, he can play, you know, the, the grave digger in what is that? All's well, I think, or no Hamlet. Mm-hmm. He can play the grave digger in Hamlet and then turn around and play a neo-Nazi in green room. <laughs> Weirdest fucking I had to get that reference in there somewhere. <laughs> I was, you know, I was waiting for it. I know you love that movie and I, that movie disappointed me so much, but not because of Patrick Stewart. Like he was, he was solid in it. Sure. I just. For, for a, a rant that it deserves, uh, find my cult fiction, uh, find the cult fiction episode on green room. And I will talk even more about why neo-Nazi Patrick Stewart is something I never knew I needed. And for my rant about how Green Room is a disappointment, buy me a drink sometime. Indeed. Um, you know, I, I want to close this out by talking about Patrick Stewart as a person, because mm. there there are several actors who, like, I can gush about their career and they're super important to me in the same ways. But the thing about Patrick Stewart that sets them apart and, you know, tying into never meeting your heroes he hasn't done anything yet. (laughs) You know, Patrick Stewart is a fierce and outspoken advocate against domestic abuse. He set up foundations. He set up charity events, um, because he lived through it and, and watched his mother suffer, um, from domestic abuse as a young boy. And it always stuck with him. And, you know, he saw this thing that he decided, he needed to do something about, you know, beyond Mm -hmm. that, he is a proud gay rights activist, which I have nothing but the utmost respect and and love for. Um, The man makes charities for rescue dogs, especially pit bulls. Like, like it is a thing for Patrick Stewart to rehabilitate the image of the modern day pit bull and not make Mm -hmm. it such a scary dog, but to show that they're the sweetest little cuddle babies you can have if you are nice to them. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And for anybody who follows him on Twitter, um, you can attest he is just an utterly delightful human being who runs around with Ian McKellen and his wife and just like takes pictures of them having ice cream or going to a Renaissance fair and just seems like an utterly delightful person. Uh, There's two things that I just want to mention in this vein. First of all, um, Patrick Stewart very famously went viral uh, for holding up a sign that basically, I, I don't remember the exact text of it, but it was something along the lines of, we live in the world, we live in a world where people only listen to straight old white men. So as a straight old white man, protect, protect young women or something like that. Um I don't remember the exact text, but it was something along that that line it, as a domestic violence PSA. Mm-hmm. So first of all, that 
kind of summarizes what you hope for from somebody like this. Yeah. Secondly, I want to ask you, and you may not know, is there any truth to the fact that, uh, is there any truth to that photo that of Patrick Stewart eating a slice of pizza that says, this is Patrick Stewart eating a slice of pizza at 71 years old. This is the first time he has ever eaten pizza. You know, I cannot speak to the veracity of that other than I believe it. I mean, he certainly, especially understanding that kind of as a, as a younger man, as a, as a young adult, he kind of carried himself with this regalness and self-seriousness. <laughs> I could see him being like, no, pizza is a dirty, like, street food i'm going to have a cob salad okay i was curious if that was something you knew about because i saw that and i was like that can't be fucking real <laughs> i so. mean I, I i at the very least believe it i i wouldn't be shocked i haven't seen anything refuting it is all i can say to that <laughs> i'll take it uh, uh but yeah you know just just to wrap up speaking about how much this man means to me, I I, I don't want to lean into morbidity, but I'm going to have to. When Robin Williams died, you know, Robin Williams, who we, who is the inaugural triple love of this show. When Mm -hmm. Robin Williams died, I sat quietly in the dark on my bed for like a half hour, just mourning the man. And then I went and watched hook. Mm Mm-hmm. When David Bowie died, I marathoned his music for like the rest of the week and, you know, sang along to Labyrinth and uh, drew out the tattoo I am eventually going to get uh, in in memorial of David Bowie. I also reflected on who in the celebrity sphere holds that same level of, of impact to me. Because there's only really one answer, and it's Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. There, there are actors I will be sad if they pass. There, there are actors who, if they, you know, if if tragic circumstances happen, I'll, I I will mourn them. But there's nobody who is going to destroy me like when Patrick Stewart eventually passes away. You know, I hope it isn't for decades still. Um, but I know in my heart of hearts that when that day comes, I am going to immediately call out of work, put on next generation. And I don't know when I'll stop. I'll probably stop to watch, uh, you know, X two, the greatest of the X-Men movies. And then Logan, because I, I want to cry. <laughs> um, yeah, Patrick Stewart is like the last person for me who like I know deep down that is going to ruin me. So I wanted to honor him here and now while he is still with us and just talk about my favorite capital A actor of all time. Okay. Tell you what, if you're, I'll be there for you when Patrick Stewart dies. If you're there for me when Stevie Wonder does, deal, deal. All right. Uh, shall we continue? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Um, so taking a turn here, 
Um, and I don't want to apply a single thing about Patrick Stewart as I talk about this, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but some people have called him a genius actor. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, as ever, I like to start with a question. And in this particular case, I want to plumb your mind for your least generous take on this subject. Mm-hmm. Namely, dear boy, can you call to mind an individual, famous or not, who you always heard referred to as a genius, but who you personally felt was an absolute hack? Sure. Um, and I, I really kind of struggled for this. It's not in my nature to um, personally think of anybody as a hack. I know. I wanted to challenge you. Or if you just think that they don't deserve the moniker of genius. You don't think they're that great. Yeah. And, and you know, I've got some answers for sure. Um, you know, not to not not to spoil your own notes, but any any rich billionaire comes to mind, especially a rich billionaire um, influencer who is um famous because their dad owned an emerald mine for instance (laughs) Um, you know anybody can be a genius when there's literally no end to the failures you can make but i digress um you know the an answer that you didn't bring up here um that i i came up with is lorne michaels um, okay, Lauren Michaels, famously um, creator and longtime producer of Saturday Night Live. Right, and and the man has such a mystique about him as you know, one a, a genius producer, a, a genius showrunner, and and a a person who like made a a staple of New York with Saturday Night Live, and is just so great that you know Thirty Rock, Alec Baldwin's character, is based off Lauren Michaels. Um, and really I just sit here and I'm kind of like, well, it's not like that was a hard formula to come up with. Hmm. You get a bunch of really talented comedic writers and improvers. You get some really great musical acts and you get a celebrity host. I mean, that's, that's the one thing he did that, uh, beat out mad TV and living color is is have this mystique of oh let's have a new ho- uh, celebrity host every week and the muppets were already doing that exactly the muppets beat <laughs> him to it god damn it <laughs> um so yeah i'm gonna say lauren michaels and this is kind of different but kind of the same i i've seen a lot of people talking about youtube celebrities and and youtube influencers and people who were famous for starting youtube at the at the right time and then moving out to beverly hills and living off of that celebrity when you're just a youtube star and even not one that like the average person knows the name of looking at your shane dawson's looking at your it, it it's such a rare thing that like i can see people's heads in my faces but i can't actually think of their names so so there's my answer to you lauren michaels and any famous youtuber okay you know what i'm here for that um and i like that because um i like your example of lauren michaels in particular because i think whatever you think of him i i think the trick to i think the trick there is that 
I don't think there's anything inherently special about Lorne Michaels. I think he's been doing something for a very long time. Um, whether or not you think he's any good at it, he's been doing it for a very long time, which carries a certain cachet. It means he's been riding a wave of success for a very long time, a wave of influence for a very long time. And Saturday Night Live has not been good that whole time. So, mm, yeah, I I like that. And I appreciate that. I know you don't like to get um, down in the muck with me, but (laughs) it's not in my nature. (laughs) It's not. You're our bright, shining, sparkle heart, and I am the depths and the darkness. So. My topic here, Andy, thank you so much for giving me the intro, is the genius myth. And I say that, and it might sound very big and broad and huge, and really, it, it's I, I have a pretty narrow point that I want to make here. And I'm going to see if I can make it succinctly, if you'll indulge me. Of course. So, um... Let's start with etymology. Uh, Let's talk about the concept of genius. So um, the traditional definition that most people understand um, is, you know, a genius, someone of very, very high intelligence, um, maybe who excels in a particular field or several fields. Uh, And there's usually the idea that there's something inherent about them, something innate, something immutable. To use the etymology of the word The ancient Roman conceit of the quote-unquote genius is that it was an actual, literal, guiding spirit. A, not deity, but like deific figure Mm. um, that would aid an individual or a family or people of a particular place over time. Um, You know, you could differentiate, you should definitely differentiate it from muses the Greek concept that's, of muses. Yeah, that's exactly where my mind was going. Yeah, but like they're, they're they're different things, but they kind of function in an identifiably similar way. There's there's an interesting overlap between those two concepts. Uh, over time, it became associated with great accomplishments, such that it became somewhat synonymous with great talent or extraordinary inspiration. The idea was you in ancient Rome you might be blessed with genius or your family might be blessed with genius um which is just to say you're kind of blessed with these guiding spirits and then eventually by like roughly the time of Caesar Augustus it comes to mean that you just have these great talents and extraordinary inspiration. Fast forward to the 18th century, and that's where we get our contemporary understanding of genius, meaning it's an exceptionally intelligent or creative person who excels greatly in one or multiple fields, seemingly through an innate giftedness. Would you say that's a fair definition, Andy? Yeah, um, the only thing that gives me any pause there... Uh, you know, one or multiple. Okay, not one, not not just multiple. Period. No, yeah, I completely agree with that. Okay, so nowadays the word is kind of haphazardly bandied. 
If you score above a 160 on an IQ test, which, don't get me started on IQ tests, those could be a hate unto themselves for me. Um, They are a biased, unreliable, kind of racist measuring system. If you score uh, above a 160 on the IQ test, you could be considered a genius. The idea with the IQ test is if you score a 100, you are absolutely with the average. And then, um, you know, the higher you score, the more intelligent you are, quote unquote, based on the metrics that they test, 160 or higher is considered genius. Um, The term is frequently used for very successful people who've been credited with advancing some field. Um, Typical examples, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates get brought up a lot. Um, So are Bach. So is Shakespeare. So was Vincent Van Gogh and Stephen Hawking, um, a certain uh, child of emerald mine owners. <laughs> uh, it's Elon Musk. For those of you who don't know, we're talking about goddamn Elon Musk um, and Mark Zuckerberg. Albert Einstein is so ingrained to this notion that his name is literally a meme placeholder for the term genius. Like calling someone an Einstein sarcastically or otherwise mm-hmm. um like that's that's kind of the weird metric the weird haphazard is really the only adjective i can properly find for it it's it's inconsistent it's weirdly cultural it's argued which is not the worst thing but the arguments are sometimes very uninspired or inconsistent in general. So, why do I fucking hate this concept? To start with, it's a myth. You know, we we've talked about auteur theory on the show before. Hey, more references. Uh, And among the notions that are frequently missed when discussing that particular brand of bullshit nonsense is the fact that so-called genius auteurs, they might be very creative or even very intelligent. You know, I I wouldn't argue that Stanley Kubrick isn't intelligent or creative, Um, but their success rarely comes from an immutable creative power or from extreme smarts. You know, Stanley Kubrick is not... does not make interesting looking films because he's so intelligent. He creates them because he's a fucking control freak. You know, it's, but, but we want to ascribe it to this inherent sense of intelligence or, or genius. And just real quick, because you've set my brain alight here. It's so often, especially in like the creative arts, especially it's brought up as a defense. You know, Stanley Kubrick was an abusive control freak. Oh, but he was a genius and he gave us the shining by, you know, giving Shelley Duvall PTSD. Um, sure. Alfred Hitchcock was a stalker, bully, megalomaniacal asshole. But he gave a psycho in the bird, so it's okay that he had weird obsessions with uh, Tippi Hedren. Yeah, you know, 
Phil Spector was one of the most brilliant producers of music and wrote some of the most classic, important songs of early pop and rock and roll. And he also tied Johnny Ramone to a chair and put a gun to his head to force him to put strings on a song. Like, that's not smart. That's just evil. I'm also really interested that you didn't bring up the fact that he murdered a woman. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, he murdered a woman, but that has nothing to do with his creative output. Sure. That's just the fact that he was just fucking monstrous. Fair enough. Oh, God. So of the people I mentioned a moment ago as examples of geniuses... Most of them have some pretty strong undercuttings to the quote-unquote innateness of their abilities. Um, I really hate the notion of, you know, it's a maybe they're born with it kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you actually look into the background, like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were both exposed to computers and electronics a lot as children thanks to their parents, you know. Bill Gates came from money. His parents bought him computer equipment when that kind of thing was still a multiple thousand dollar investment. People talk about how he dropped out of Harvard, but he could afford to drop out of Harvard. Right. You know, Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs didn't come from the same amount of money, but his father was an engineer. So he just had access to a lot of mechanical equipment early on. I, you think of Hawking, you think of Zuckerberg, and especially you think of Elon Musk. All of them came from very economically privileged backgrounds that afforded them educations and connections and fucking money. You said it, Andy. It's not hard to be the motherfucker that founded PayPal when you spent your childhood walking around with goddamn emeralds in your pockets. Yeah. And, you know, famously, like, I think I read that Tesla has yet to actually make a profit. But, like, economic forecasts say that it's right on the peak or something, but... You know, to this point, I I believe this is accurate. Tesla has not actually made Elon Musk any money. But he's still been able to make Tesla into Tesla. Yeah. At a loss. Yeah. Because he didn't need to. He parlayed family money into PayPal. And I'm going to be honest. Like, capitalism is not consensual. I use PayPal. I use PayPal regularly. I use PayPal regularly because it is safer to buy things online with PayPal than it is to put in my credit or debit information. Well, it sucks sure. and I hate it. But I kind of got like it's still sadly the smartest option available to me. Um last thing on this point I mentioned Bach, I mentioned Van Gogh, and I mentioned William Shakespeare, um, you know, who Patrick Stewart was a very big fan of. Indeed. Um, (laughs) None of them were praised for their quote-unquote genius while they were alive. I don't think a lot of people realize that, like, nobody gave a fuck about Bach. I I think people know about Shakespeare and Van Gogh. I don't think people realize no one gave a fuck about Bach while he was alive. That cello piece 
that everyone always references that Yo-Yo Ma did a beautiful recording of, that wasn't discovered until years after Bach's death by someone who was just going through old papers and fucking found his old scores. None of these people were praised while they were alive. Instead, they all died with little to modest success and were only retroactively appreciated after they were recontextualized at a future date. They were all rediscovered. You could talk about there being something to the genius, like them being ahead of their times, maybe. But there is very much an argument to be had that whatever whatever greatness was stemming from them, we can only really understand it because those things subsequent to their reintroduction into their art forms helped define the future art forms. People took inspiration from Van Gogh for having done those other things and it sparked new movements. But that doesn't necessarily mean there was anything immutable to it. So, Does that make sense as an argument? Yeah, because, I mean, I think to boil it down and, and put it into different words, it's a subjective metric. If you can recontextualize and reanalyze something after the fact and then say, oh, this was genius, when for the entirety of the artist's lifetime it was not considered as such, then you are subjectively changing the definitions and it is only then the agreed upon subjectivity of of whatever it may be whether it's art or film or finances um finances is a, is a little harder because the proof is money um but no i i, I caught into what you're hearing yeah it's just you know, when that is one of the things that defines what follows, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of modern art that I fully admit I just don't understand. It is well beyond me. And maybe there is something to it, you know? Maybe there's artists creating now who are making work that I, as a reasonably educated, but not like, I, I've never claimed to be an expert in visual art, um... But I'm reasonably educated on the subject. Um, stuff that I don't understand that will later go on to inspire incredible new movements and great new ideas. Non-fungible token. But there's nothing to say that that's just about the inherent genius of the creators. It's just about, at that point, it's fucking about timing, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I would stand for an argument of modern day quantum physicists or structural engineers, people pioneering like new ways to make stuff. Th those people, um, their contributions and like a, a genius quantum physicist. It's it's hard to say that that's subjective, but again. I, I bet you anything in my home that some kid from an inner city slum 
isn't going to be given the opportunities in life to go on and become a genius quantum physicist. Sure. Even if that same kid would have had the potential to be given those opportunities. Right. Um, something that... To kind of posit my counter-argument here, uh, a few years ago, there's a tech entrepreneur, a former tech entrepreneur named Kevin Ashton, who published a book called How to Fly a Horse, The Secret History of Creation, Invention, and Discovery. Um, it's a very dry read. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I reference it because um, this is something that sparked a lot of this for me. His argument in it is that what we cite as genius can more often be chalked up to to either luck or obsessiveness. I would personally add privilege to that list as well. Ashton doesn't really, but I would. So, for example, um, and I know I've discussed stuff like this in the past, but I, I, I think of someone like Tom Morello, guitarist for Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave, who is who before he got famous for having one of the most innovative guitar sounds of all time nobody sounds like tom morello when he plays guitar he has a pedal board of like seven effects all of which you can buy at guitar center for like maybe three or four hundred bucks and some and the same cheap ass guitars that he's been playing for 30 years like he he, he and he gets these incredible innovative mind-blowing sounds super creative sounds and he's the first one to say before he got famous for doing all of that he spent most of his like late teens and 20s eight hours a day practicing guitar and he would talk about that. He spent like two hours on theory, two hours on songwriting, two hours on improvisation, two hours on scale tech. Like he eight hours a day, every single day for multiple years, including holidays, never really taking time off. Like that is, that is why he is so innovative. Not because he's like got some insane genius to it. Not because there's, he was born with it. It's because he was obsessed with this and sure. loved it and put in all of those hours. Um, I think of Bobby Fischer, you know, who was a chess prodigy and a champion when he was a teenager. You know, he was 13 when he won his first championship. And, you know, people can say, like, you look at a child prodigy and you sit here and go, how is it that this child could be such a prodigy? And you know what? He also kind of had some neuroatypicalities that likely manifested as obsessiveness. And chess was his outlet. He's said in interviews that chess was an outlet. It was something that just he obsessed over. And he sat there and played games with himself, played games in his head, and, and thought about chess every second of the day that's compulsive behavior that's obsessiveness it also probably helped that he was lucky enough to be mentored early on by some pretty great players and that was sheer happenstance that was he happened to be noticed playing chess 
by some folks who were by some people happening by and were just like, oh, you're pretty good. Come to this chess club. And then at the chess club, he did a tournament where he did not the best, but okay. And some and, and a nationally recognized chess teacher noticed him and took him under his wing and started mentoring him. That's luck. Yeah, that is luck of the draw combined with really obsessive, probably should have been in therapy kind of behavior. None of that is inherent intelligence. None of that's something he's is is like being born more creative or being born smarter. Absolutely. You know, Alex, there's there's one thing we haven't discussed here. Can I can I tack on and and maybe blow your mind a little bit? Hit me. We have not discussed a single woman in this entire conversation. And there's kind of a reason for that. Uh, are you familiar mm-hmm. with Jamie Loftus? <laughs> I love Jamie Loftus. Jamie Loftus, famous uh, L.A. comedian. If you've ever heard anyone refer to quarantining as, quote, the quar, Jamie Loftus came up with that. She also did a great podcast called My Year in Mensa. Yep. <laughs> and And for those who don't know, Mensa is like the official genius club, like... You take a test, and if you get in and your IQ is high enough, you you are allowed into Mensa. And and as the title suggests, Jamie Loftus got into Mensa and spent a year in the organization and kind of half realized, half uncovered the fact that it was kind of this very toxic, masculine, fragile, misogyny, boys club mentality um that she picked apart and exposed the emotional immaturity of several Mensa members until they petitioned to kick her out of the genius club my year in Mensa is like a four-part podcast you could watch the whole you, you could listen to the whole thing in an afternoon um it's like four I think 30 to 45 minute episodes it is great. Look it up. Uh, Jamie Loftus is brilliant. I, I adore her work. Um, and I actually appreciate you pointing that out, Andy. Um, you're right. None of the people I've talked about here uh, as cultural examples of genius have been women. And when I hear about women being referred to as geniuses, I think, like, I think of uh, Madame Curie. I feel like um, Susan Sandberg gets some gets some points there um, for good or ill. Uh, I can personally think of a few people in the arts that you know. I, I've heard Alice Walker uh, referred to in that way. Uda um, Hagen, sure, sure. Um, you know, A- Angela Davis um, gets put up there. Maya Angelou. Um, uh, Toni Morrison, absolutely. Um, but again, I think of all those people and I sit here and I go, is there anything immutable to them? Is there anything that they were clearly born with? Oh, and no. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the answer is yes. It's not like all of a sudden, uh, a woman genius is any more or less valid than a man genius. But like on top of everything else that is problematic about the genius myth, you know, the very concept is is mired in uh, misogyny 
as is all things in our existence. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Absolutely. And it's it's interesting that you're right. Like all the people we've talked about here by and large are white dudes. Yeah. Uh not to say it's only white dudes who get called geniuses, but it is mostly white dudes who get called geniuses. And like so many toxic myths, I'm beating a dead horse that I beat on this podcast constantly. It's a question of who has the power? Who does the myth empower? It makes powerful people more powerful. It suggests that they are successful or famous or have done this incredibly influential work because there is something unattainable about them. And to a degree, that's true because for a lot of them, you know, for a lot of us, that kind of privilege is unattainable. But, you know, I was born smarter than you and I was born richer than you are two very different obstacle questions. Absolutely. And com- and I, I I challenge people on this. Um stop calling anyone a genius. Really, even if you like them. You know, I <laughs> I'm not going to call John Mulaney a genius. Um even though I like him very very much. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to call Patrick Stewart a genius, even though I think he is quite incredible at what he does. Not because I don't feel like they deserve accolades. I think they deserve so many accolades. But the concept of genius is something that I think, whether this was the intention for it or not, the way that it exists in our culture now is that it's, and going back to the original etymology of the word, it's like there's something deified about it, something otherworldly, something supernatural that sets these people apart. They are blessed in a way that is above and beyond the rest of us because they're just born better, born smarter, born more creative. And if you ever dig into an actual quote-unquote genius, that's never the case. Mm-hmm. And if you think it is, you probably don't know enough about that person or not enough about them is available. It's almost always explainable, whether that's by a privilege, whether that's by an obsessiveness, whether that's by a lot of unseen time and work. It's not to say that they don't deserve commendation, although a lot of them don't. It's to say that it's not quite so mysterious. Would, That's my last word on it. I don't know if you had anything else to say on the subject, Andy. No, no, I, I, I can't put a hat on top of that hat, but I've truly loved this conversation. Yeah, I love it. Um, We're at like an hour 10. Shall we do the question? Yeah, let's burn through this sucker. <laughs> All right. You want to read this one since I read the uh, format? Absolutely. Uh, and like you said earlier, this comes to us from relationships.txt. Uh, and I don't remember the title cause we didn't save that part of it, but you, you'll get the gist of what this question is. 
my mom and I are not on perfect terms. And this is a 35-year-old woman and her 64-year-old mother-in-law. My dad was murdered when I was 13. Mom left a week later. She likely had something to do with it. Never prosecuted, but the DA shared he was certain of her involvement. Seriously, it was a Dateline-level story. Nonetheless, 23 years later, she and I speak about once every three months. I've made peace for my own sake, but we are definitely not close, and I have a healthy amount of boundaries in place with her, which include her not having contact with my kids or my chosen family. Uh, last week, my husband got drunk. We've been together for 13 years, so I know him well enough to realize when it's a dumb level of drunk, and I should just go to bed instead of arguing about it. After going to bed, my mom texts me asking what I'm doing. She rarely contacts me, so this is weird. I ignore her, but I hear my husband on the phone in the other room. When I ask who he's talking to, he waves me off. After prodding, he eventually says it's my mom, and she called him, and yeah, so it's weird. I immediately text my mom, telling her it's inappropriate, and she sends me screenshots of the messages he had been sending with the explanation that he actually called her. It's 10 p.m. at this point. The messages detailed how good she looked and how he wanted to meet up with her and how he knew it was wrong to be messaging her this. It went on for over an hour before he called her. I was completely blindsided. I thought my marriage was amazing. It's the weirdest betrayal. Even if it had been an innocent conversation, I think I'd be upset because he knows what she's done to me. He knows the reason she's not in our kids' lives. He's held me while I sobbed about it. I just don't know where to go from here. I have two. We have two kids. I was so happy. Is it possible to recover from this? So, to recap, we have a woman whose husband of 13 years is trying to hit on at the very least, if not actively start some sort of secondary relationship with the mother, with his mother-in-law. Possibly. Well, no, definitely. He, the occasion where it was discovered was while he was heavily under the influence of alcohol. Yep. Um, and apparently he's under said influence to that degree often enough that his wife can apparently recognize it. Hmm. So as all things, uh, we need a nickname for this asker. Yeah. Did we already, we already talked, we, we already used the graduate as a reference, didn't we? I believe we have. Yes. Although that, that yeah, that would have been pretty perfect. Ugh. <laughs> okay what uh i'm trying to think what options we have here um, uh this is very this strikes me as very game of thrones very sons of anarchy this is some prime time um drama in the bad way kind of behavior is there anyone in Games of Thrones who, like, tries to have a relationship with, like, someone he's with's mother? Um, trying to think. I mean, the answer is probably. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here. Um, this isn't a perfect analogy. But this this feels 
um very sons of anarchy to me um okay which i know you're not super familiar with but is you know was the uh the biker uh drama primetime show that had katie sagel and um started charlie hunnam's career um it's not a perfect analogy because the character i would assign this to this this feels like our asker is tara who is the wife of main character Jax, and that would make the mother-in-law uh gemma teller who is Jax's mother um so bearing in mind that i'm creating an incest situation here unintentionally <laughs> i never watched the show so i'm cool with it i, I propose um, our asker is tara from sons of okay. anarchy you better email me these names so oh, I can put I them in the show Indeed, notes. Of course. Oh, uh, great. Okay, so we've got Tara is the asker, Jax is the husband, and Jenna? Gemma with an M. Gemma is the mom. Okay. You seem to be spending a lot of time and energy worrying about my life. Do I scare you that much, Gemma? I'm not worried about you. Whew. Shall I start since you read? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Um Tara, I for all my, you know, talk and brooding and discussion of how I'm dark and edgy and you know, all all of these things. I'm a pretty forgiving person. In most circumstances, um, Andy can attest to this. Uh, and I'm usually very big on like, you know what? Second chances. It's people deserve them. People make mistakes, etc., etc., etc. You know, and you ask if it is possible to recover from this. I'm going to answer that question very straightforwardly. And then plumb into something deeper is it possible to recover from this you know what maybe it might be possible to recover from this um you know your husband jacks may have some substance abuse issues you two might require a whole lot of counseling it's there is some dark, deep, heavy stuff here that if you really wanted to parse out and you were committed to working out, you theoretically could. That said, I don't think you should. I really don't. And the biggest reason is because of the details surrounding this issue. Um, your husband's had a moment where he showed you a moment where he was a severe piece of shit um now if it weren't for the circumstances of your relationship with your mother and if it weren't for the fact that you have two kids um i might sit here and go like maybe this is a severe substance abuse issue and you know you know he you know he he warned but a he knows your shit with your mom. And shit with your mom is not like, oh, we didn't get along when we, when I was a teenager. Um, your shit with your mom is that you're pretty sure she killed your dad. That's fucking 
That's some shit, yo. That's... That should have been the question. And it's not, Tara. So... Jax is aware of this. And he still gets absolutely hammered and inappropriately hits on your mom and knows it even while fucked up. He knows it enough to sit there and go, I know I shouldn't be messaging you like this. And on top of that, you have kids. If this was just the three of you, uh, I still wouldn't really be on board with, you know, we're c continuing forward here, but you have kids. And your kids are already probably going to be kind of traumatized from this if they learn anything about it. So... Get the fuck out. Take your kids with you. I don't know how much you want to tell them. I don't know what their ages are. I don't know how much they can appreciate or understand what's going on. But I'm assuming they are still children. And this is fucked up enough. This is dark enough. That for the good of your kids, I think you need to end your marriage. Don't bother trying to recover from this. Hopefully, Jax goes and gets the help that he needs, and he needs help. But for you, and your family, and your children, I'd say leave. Don't try to recover from it. Try and build your new life with your kids elsewhere. And get out of this. Andy? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree a lot with what you said. And, you know, thank you for contextualizing the importance of including the backstory. Because my initial take was that that was kind of an unrelated bit. But no, you're right. There is some, some deep, horrid, emotional trauma um, that Jax was aware of and is is tempted anyway in this awful way even if it is inspired by the bad level of drunk there there are enough red flags here that i very much agree um saying you know that there's a level of drunk that should just end your night and he can go off and be that drunk. That's, that's not okay. You don't want that. Um, and Jax absolutely needs help for that. There is a very dark component here. That is another red flag for me. Um, you know, he, he mentions, as you said, he mentions that he knows that this is inappropriate to, try and and start something with his mother-in-law you don't mention your kids genders and maybe that's not pertinent but maybe it is i i get really worried hearing a guy 
say like, I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't do this, but, and has an alcohol abuse issue and has at the very least, um, incredibly loose ideas of familial boundary. It would be one thing if he's hitting on a random stranger, but he's hitting on your mother-in-law or he's hitting on his mother-in-law. So without dwelling on that implication too much, I, I agree that probably, yeah, it's possible to recover, but that isn't the same thing as your marriage recovers. I think you owe it to yourself to find out if this is the first time it's happened. Um, if this is what his mindset was and, and you'll probably be met with excuses, but you know, maybe there's something you can glean from there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you, you really hope that Tara has a, social network that allows her to evacuate easily. Um, even if she doesn't, even if it's the hardest thing she has to do, I think that's probably the play here at the very least have a long period of separation. Hmm. Um, not to, make light of a tragic situation, but you know, Tara doesn't even have the option of saying, I'm going to go stay with my mother for a few weeks. Jesus Christ, Andy. <laughs> I got to make this happy somehow. I just alluded oh. to potential incestual child abuse here. <laughs> Ugh. See, I don't even need that implication to just be like, get the fuck out. <laughs> well, no fair, but I, you know, I think it's, it's important to, uh, make sure that the implication is, is aware because I, I think it, it really solidifies how uh, this, this marriage needs to really end and, and yeah. the situation needs to change. So we wish Tara the best. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's always kind of hit or miss if these words will ever go heated, but we always try to make sure. And if nothing else, maybe, I mean, hopefully the situation isn't applicable to you, dear listener, but maybe there's something you can glean from it. Um, if you, dear listener, have a relationship question of your own, you can send those in. We love getting listener questions. We always do our very best to read them, respond to them uh, promptly, and then, you know, feature you on the episode anonymously with a fun code name. You can send those questions into love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. And again, we promise we'll read them. Absolutely. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I hope you're doing well. This is probably a weird episode for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, and follow us there to keep up with new episodes. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mentioned it earlier when I was gushing about Patrick Stewart. I have another podcast called Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Cult movies like Green Room, which features neo-Nazi Patrick Stewart. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to hear that or any of our other episodes, you can find Cult Fiction at everywhere Alex just mentioned you can find LHR. And you can find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JoeVocop2113. 
That's right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And I've been plugging my TikTok, but like, I'm going to be honest, I have not gone on TikTok in weeks because people keep sending me uh, TikToks and I've got like over a hundred sitting in my inbox and I'm like, I'm never going to watch these. Uh, so you can track me down on chess.com. Um, my Twitter and Instagram is a underscore X underscore R U I Z. My chess.com handle is a X R U I Z zero eight nine. Um, I've kicked Andy's ass a whole bunch on, on it. So yep, kicking my ass now. Yeah, no, straight up. Like, Oh honey, like, it wasn't a bad pawn move, but like you gotta control the center, Andy. Um, the most douchebag thing I've ever heard you say. Oh, you love me, <laughs> and uh, hopefully all of you listeners love me as well. I certainly need it. <laughs> um, <laughs> finally, got you to gut laugh this episode. Thanks for listening, y'all. Please, as ever, tell your enemies. Mm-hmm.